On today's episode of Bill and Frank's Guilt-Free Pleasures, we talk about a song and its association with Japanese cuisine. We discuss a snare drum sound that changed musical history. And a special guest will take you to Remix Corner. This is our take on Fine Young Cannibals' She Drives Me Crazy. Nineteen eighty nine was a huge year for us as music listeners because at that point we were in grade six. And we're five years removed from arguably the greatest year of music, nineteen eighty four. Correct. But for us, eighty nine is probably the year where we're really starting to develop our own musical taste. And I remember kind of hitting our stride. Hitting yeah, that's right. And I remember loving today's song, which is She Drives Me Crazy by the Fine Young Cannibals. I also remember taking some flack from my uh, my parents because they weren't sure how they felt about it. Well, because who wants to listen to a band that's a bunch of cannibals? Yeah, it's a tough name. So to discuss this song, we have brought on our guest, uh, Nate Holmes, who you might remember from uh, the quintessential Yacht Rock song, Orinoco Flow by Enya, one of our earlier episodes. Great to be back, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm trying to tamp down my energy, but I'm as excited about this song as Bill is. And I did want to mention that I remember, for me, the first time hearing the song was at an event that I believe that you were at as well, Frank, which was the grade seven dance at St. David's Public School. (laughs) Yeah, sounds about right. Is this the dance where you danced? My first dance? Your first dance. First slow dance? My first slow dance. Yeah, I... I... Let me guess who it was. Can I say the names? We'll bleep them out. Okay, Jody Kostecki. No. Morgan Walker. No. Lonnie Wing. No. Rachel Smith. No. Your teacher. (laughs) No. Your sister. (laughs) Oddly, no. Who was it? Callie Slingerland. Wow. Can't believe I forgot about Callie Slingerland. Maybe I had heard it before on the radio, but I think I really heard it, heard it at the grade seven dance because it was being broadcast through a, you know, professional sound system. And that was the way to kind of really get in tune with the song. When we were kids, we'd hear this song and it was just like this neat sounding pop song. Yeah. But the more we've looked into this, the more complicated this song is and deceptively simple it is. There's a lot happening, but it's sparse at the same time, which doesn't make sense, but also makes complete sense the way I'm thinking about it. I totally agree. It seems like when you listen to the song that each part is kind of by itself and kind of coming together in a very interesting way. David Z says the song is a celebration of the space between the parts. Isn't that great? That's amazing. And it captures the song in ways I never thought about before. But then when you come back to it, it makes perfect sense. Well, David Z was, and we'll, we'll talk about this later, I'm sure. He was a 
part of Prince's sort of production team, was he not? He was. But in Canada, he's called David Zed. <laughs> Doesn't roll off the tongue so nicely, does it? Well, that's why he was never popular in Canada as a producer. All right, why don't we jump into band history first? I think so. Okay. Well, Frank, I know you're really excited to talk about <laughs> the... Um, the second coming of ska in England. The second wave of ska. Two of the members of Fine Young Cannibals, Andy Cox and David Steele, were members of the band The Beat, known in US and Canada as The English Beat. The Beat broke up and they found out about it when the lead singer from The Beat, he was on a like a television program or something like that. And he announced just like, yeah, I'm starting this other project. The Beat's dead. So there was like... I heard different versions of this. One was that they read it in the news. Oh, okay. That general public had been started. Yeah, with yeah. Okay. The lead singer and the Toastmaster. Is that what you call the Toaster? Other Toaster. I did a deep dive into the career ranking Roger, who actually is not related to Fine Young Cannibals at all. But I found out all these things about the English beat. They were so young when they started. These are all kids. They're like teenagers when the beat actually began. So this is like 78. So when I think about the Fine Young Cannibals, I don't realize how young they actually were. Because I think Roland Gift, who ended up being lead singer of the Fine Young Cannibals, was only like in his early 20s when they started in the mid-80s. So by the time you get to the late 80s, when we're hearing this, they're maybe getting close to 30. Yeah. But they've had an entire significant career before this point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the beat were part of that second wave of ska that also included like the specials and the selector and madness. It was all happening kind of late 70s, early 80s in England. And then the beat come from Birmingham, which is an interesting musical town, I think, because for a few reasons. So we have like, I looked up all the bands that were from Birmingham. Do you guys want to hear? Yes. Yeah, yeah. The beat. (laughs) Thanks. UB40. Duran Duran, Dexy's Midnight Runners, Steel Pulse, which were more of a reggae band. But it's a really multicultural yeah. city um, with a lot of influence coming from all of the people that are migrating from uh, the Caribbean uh, into England after World War II. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Well, neat. And, you know, Second Wave Ska was very much about kind of combining the influences from all of those musical traditions from Jamaica and Trinidad and uh, the Caribbean into other styles and also being kind of very political about it, too, because, you know, this is the Thatcher era in, in England and... Um, there's also kind of a wave of racism that's happening and the specials and the selector and beat were all part of the kind of rock against racism movement and were notable for having kind of integrated an integrated band, you know, a, a racially integrated band. UB40, the specials, uh, the beat were all bands that featured white and black members, which was something that was kind of remarkable or uh, for the time. I know that when I first listened to the Fine Young Cannibals and saw the video, I was actually kind of amazed too that it was interracial. Right. I guess when I, for us in grade six, I wasn't used to seeing that. There's They're usually just separated bands. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then Andy Cox and David Steele leave the beat. Yep. And then they decide to start a new band because, well, General Public is starting. What was the lead singer's name again? Of General Public? Yeah. Dave Wakeling? Yes. Okay. So they go off and start their own thing. So Andy Cox, David Steele put an ad out on uh, MTV to get a a lead singer and they 
get like hundreds, if not thousands of demo tapes that they're kind of going through. So they can't really decide on a lead singer because no one really, you know, piques their interest. And then they say, well, what about that guy that plays saxophone and sometimes sings in a band called Acrylics? Acrylics is spelled really weirdly. That Roland Gift guy. So they bring him in, he auditions, and that's how he joins the band. You know what amazes me? When you hear Acrylics, I can't tell that this guy's going to be a good singer. Oh, okay. And I felt this sort of the same way with some of the early beat stuff, too. I don't realize how musically strong these people are. And so I'd have this assumption about ska music or even punk music, too, that, oh, it's a type of music for people who can't play. But I'm <laughs> so wrong, especially with ska. Like, I'm such an idiot. But but you'd hear horns, you'd hear all these things. But yeah. have you heard any of Acrylics? Uh, no, I haven't really listened to, to a whole lot. Well, this is your lucky day. When I hear him singing that, I just hear a guy kind of yelling a bit. Like, yeah. I don't get that there's actually this other voice. Underneath this, that. Yeah, the capabilities. I feel like this is a common theme. And in a my... versatile voice. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. A versatile, like he's doing different styles of singing with yeah. fine young cannibals, at least. Yeah. yeah, right. So they end up calling up Rolling Gift, like you said, and they just get together and they start Fine Young Cannibals. They don't even have a record contract, but I think they record an album or they at least make the song Johnny Come Home, yeah. which we know is Chris Newkirk's favorite song yeah. by the Fine Young Cannibals, and they play it on a, a show called The Tube. Yeah. I'll put the link actually in the show notes. I think I have the actual video of when they performed it. And on the strength of their recording of Johnny Come Home or their, their live version of it, they get signed to a record contract, release their debut album, Fine Young Cannibals, which does all right. has uh, Johnny Come Home and a fascinating cover of Suspicious Minds. And I really like that cover. It's really good. I love it, actually. Elvis came to Roland Gift in a dream to tell him oh, about Oh, really? It, apparently. Wow. Yeah. They, that album comes out. It doesn't do great numbers, but the no. critics like it a lot. And then they end up being used in movie soundtracks and yeah. in movies. Because, yeah. this comes up a lot, Roland Gift might be the most attractive man ever, according to different He's outlets. He's incredibly handsome. Yeah. Well, Tom Bryan mentions that in his uh, Stereo Gum article. Now, the question I have is, because he has that intense stare in the video, and we'll, we'll talk about the video even more um, later on. Who stares better? Roland Gift in the She Drives Me Crazy video, or Gregory Abbott? and shake you down. I don't think it's fair to Roland to have to ever face Gregory Abbott in a stare down. All right, here's the difference. Roland gives stares, and you're like, oh man, she's driving him crazy. Gregory Abbott stares, and it's smoldering, and it's like, Gregory Abbott's going to get whatever Gregory Abbott desires. Yeah, it's a real toss-up. Wait, who is Gregory Abbott? Gregory Abbott's got green eyes that just look right through you. Oh, they not they're deep, like through your soul. Yeah. Into the soul of the person behind you. Roland Gift is just completely gorgeous. And when he's looking, you're just saying, wow, that is a pretty face. Yeah. But when Gregory Abbott stares at the screen, he's staring through your soul and he sees everything you've done. Yeah. I'll tell you what, when 
Uh, Roland Giff stares at me. He drives me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Barry Levinson puts him in a movie called... Tin Man. Tin Man. Yes. And it, because he's, there was a song in Something Wild where he covered... The Buzzcock. There it is. Yeah. And Ever Fallen in Love. Yeah. Which is on... See, that's why bro. Nate's here. Yeah. That's good. Which is on the Something Wild soundtrack. Yeah. And the Raw and the Cooked. They ended up being put there too. So ah. there's a couple songs... In Tin Men, like Good Thing, and a couple other ones that yeah. ended up on the Raw and the Cooked. So by the time we get to the second album that I think is released in 88 in it's, the it's UK. It's recorded in 88. Yeah. I think it's released in 89. Yeah, okay. They have sort of a compilation album because they have a bunch of songs and covers they've done. And then they still have a bunch of other songs they're working on. Yeah. Which leads us to this song. Before we jump into like kind of the song history, I always heard this urban legend about how they came up with their name. That they were looking through a magazine and there's one of the ads at the back of the magazine, which was a, an advertisement for fine young cannabis. And the members of the group read it incorrectly as fine young cannibals and decided that was the name of the band. Truthfully, it is actually taken from a movie from the uh, 1960 called All the Fine Young Cannibals. Natalie Wood movie? Yes. And I watched a little bit of it yesterday, and then I stopped. Yeah. That good, eh? <laughs> Is it like, better or worse than St. Elmo's Fire? Oh, it's much better than St. Elmo's okay. Fire. Tough name for a movie. I'm not sure if it's going to sell well in 1961, but who am I to judge? Interestingly, not a single member of the band has ever seen that movie. So oh, Ro seriously? Rolling Gift said, I don't want to jinx myself by watching it just in case I don't like the movie. <laughs> they might have seen like a poster for it or maybe there was a poster somewhere and it just kind of struck them as an interesting name for a band. I want to throw in, though, we were talking about Rolling Gift's attractiveness. They also like look good together as a band just because David Steele and Andy Cox kind of look like twins almost. Yeah. So when you put Rolling this incredibly attractive man and then two twins on either side of him it just looks symmetrical i was gonna and say there's a symmetry there yeah yeah they look great so they just look like a a unit like an incredible unit it reminds me of the Jimi hendrix experience because those other two guys look the exact same to me and there's Jimi hendrix who is totally unique looking yeah and so this isn't quite a 1980s version of the Jimi hendrix experience but there is this sort of balance that that we see there. yeah which they play with in the photos for the band. Like it's kind of their, you know, they're they're highlighting that the beauty and the symmetry and the balance of the of the guys in the band. And the music video does that where they disappear yeah. behind them and then reappear. But all you're looking at is Rolling Gift's face. Yeah. Exactly. And that intense stare. That leads us to the song called She's My Baby. Is that right? Yeah. She's yeah. my baby. They have a song they're not really that thrilled with called She's My Baby. But they actually want to get a producer for this album as well. Or they want to work with someone for a couple songs. And they're looking for a very particular producer. Yeah, they tried to get Prince on board. Prince doesn't work like that. No. But someone who works with Prince does work like that. Canadian David Zed. <laughs> Not Canadian. He was from Minneapolis. So almost Canadian. Dave Z comes out of Minneapolis. He worked in LA for a while. And I actually listened to like some of his early production for some like a country tune with uh, Graham Parsons. Yeah. And he ended up in a band called Lip Sync. Yes. Yeah. He played guitar in yeah. Lip Sync and, uh, for Funky Town. Yeah. Right? So when you hear Funky Town, uh, he's, he's one of the guitar players in there. Won't you take me 
I have that lip sync record and even beyond Funky Town, there are some really good tracks. I would highly recommend checking out the lip sync deep cuts. Absolutely. Yeah. He ends up also working with Prince on his debut album. Is that right? He's helped recording He it? did a remix of Kiss. So is David Z the one who recommends to Fine Young Cannibals that they perhaps change the title and the lyrics to She's My Baby to improve it? I think that he mentions that he works with them to redefine the song and reshape it around a more interesting title than She's My Baby, which becomes She Drives Me Crazy, right? But David Z becomes known for using drum samples, drum loops, and just kind of basically innovative production techniques in his work. Uh, Very forward-thinking for like the the late 70s, early 80s. And this leads to one particular sound that he made for this song. And we could probably do a two to three hour podcast deep dive on how he came up with this sound. If you could actually see the background of the Winchester right now, there's a whiteboard with diagrams and arrows and equations strewn all around it trying to understand and explain how the snare drum works on this we might have to take a pause in the podcast while i go take a community college course in audio engineering so that i can understand everything he did to achieve the snare drum sound while nate's in his college class (laughs) we'll just say this that snare drum was created the first day of tracking and I, I don't just, know what tracking means. Oh, well, neither do I. I just I just said it. I know someone knows it. Nate, have you covered tracking in your community college course yet or no? We're just still going over the syllabus right oh, now. Okay. <laughs> Is tracking on it? Yeah, there's a whole week on tracking. All right, good. I have a feeling that they have a bunch of tracks for a song and that they'll layer them over top of each other. So one of the tracks is going to be the snare drum sound. Now, I was texting with Nate last night, and one of the things that I said amazed me was not only that they came up with the sound, but that Dave Z actually remembered exactly how he got the sound. You want to hear some of this, Frank? Yes. Okay. I might speed it up a bit just to kind of show how crazy this is. I took the head off of a snare drum and started whacking it with a wooden ruler, recording it through a Shure 57 microphone. As I did that, I started twisting the hell out of the EQ around 1 kilohertz on it, to the point where it started to sound more like a crash. I blended that with a snare I found in the Lin itself, which was a 12-bit machine, as you all know, so it sounded pretty edgy to start with. But then, he did more. He blended wait, the sample. More. Yeah, he blended the sample through an Oratone speaker set upside down atop another snare drum, which was rattling the metal snares and gave the result some ambience and more high end ended up coming into the sound. And then he sent that track on a roll of Ampex 456 running on a Studer A800 at 15 IPS. Only a slight amount of reverb was added to the track afterwards. The sonic result was closer to a hollow wooden block sound than any snare found on a conventional rock record. And so that's how we got the sound. So from what I understand, Frank, did you get all that, by the way? No, none of it. Uh, Do you want to repeat that, Bill? (laughs) (laughs) No, from what I understand, he calls it like kind of a sandwich. He's playing a drum a pre-recorded uh, drum, like a drum machine called the Lin 9000, but he's playing it through a speaker that's going through an actual snare and then recording that. So it's two snares on top of each other, an actual snare and a recording of a snare, and that is how he's getting the snare effect. But also, one more thing, he added an additional tail, like he added a tail on the snare. 
So the tail is like, you know, when you hear a snare drum, it goes, I don't want to make this sound. Well, I'll try to do the sound. It goes, and it yeah, kind of yeah. tails out. He used a, a ghetto blaster and he put it on like not a station just to, so it's getting white noise. And then he recorded the white noise. And that is what gives the snare the, sound its tail. The tail. Okay. All of that is really impressive. But why didn't they just buy a snare drum that sounded like the sound they wanted? That's the question I'm asking. Well, why don't we put that in the Spotify question of the week and we can get responses. Try to be kind to Frank, who clearly didn't listen to a word I just said. No, not one. Wow, Frank. If they had done it the way that you think that they should have done it, would that song have become as iconic? Would Pepsi Cola have stolen the snare sound for a Pepsi Cola commercial in the early 90s? Maddening David Z. I'm going to say yes. That's good. Always, uh, you know, when you're up against the uh, corner, just punch your way out. Or yeah. turtle. Well, it's one or the other. Actually, David Z set is, is kind of pretty sanguine about the, the snare drum. He didn't get that upset about it. I think he was, he, he was a little bit proud that it, it was imitated so often throughout different commercials and popular culture. My sense is he's similar to Grandmaster Flash. If you ever watch Hip Hop Evolution, Grandmaster yeah. Flash would talk about how he came up with this unique sort of stuff in the production. And he knew it to like a T and he could show what's going on and he knew he was innovating and that people would copy him, but he was okay because he knew he's the one who came up with it. So David Z spent an entire day to get this one sound, but that one sound makes the entire song work. Well, it reverberates through history. Wow. Yeah. Does that make sense? Wow. That's perfect. There, yeah. That is profound. So now we got a snare drum. So there's that. But there's more, right? There's a guitar sound. And I think that leads to your sister's comment. Oh, yeah. my. So I was listening to She Drives Me Crazy in the car with my sister yesterday and asking for her impressions of it. I don't think she was that familiar with the song. She's a little bit younger. So it was great because we could get kind of raw and uncooked first impression of the song. Well done. And she described the... Wait, no, it wasn't well done. It was raw, not <laughs> It was it's good, it's good. medium. She described the guitar as a car crash. I think she means the distorted guitar part. Yeah, because the, there's that crunchy sort of feel, those power chords that are in the verses and, and the chorus. It's almost edging on uh, industrial. Interestingly, each of those guitar parts was like six tracks deep. So oh, they okay. would layer it on top of each other. And that's why you're getting that part fuzzy of the tracking sound. part of the tracking. So it's not just one guitar sound. He's taking that guitar sound and layering it six times. So that one is you can't imitate this ever in a live show. Yeah, right. This is a perfect studio creation. But all these sounds are so unique. And they could only be created through super focused hard work. Yeah. And that was uh, one of the things when Fine Young Cannibals started is they were going to focus on just creating music in studio and not so much touring. So I think all of their work in the studio obviously pays off with this song. See, this all makes perfect sense because I don't want to jump ahead too much, but they do break up shortly after 
the raw and the cooked. So it's clear that they actually don't want a tour because that would be the demand for them after some, something so popular, right? To yeah. do like uh, extensive touring. And probably they said, no, we don't really want to do that. And uh, let's just stick with what we have. Yeah. For sure. They have two great albums and that's it. Andy Cox and David Steele are more interested in doing production stuff and doing their own thing. Even though the, I don't know if I call it accusation leveled against them, is that they went more commercial Mm -hmm. than General Republic. General Public. Let me try that again. General Public. But when I hear General Public, that sounds like it's music for the masses just as much as this is. Yeah. Yeah, General Public was pretty commercial. Yeah, they're like a new wave band, right? There was like this interesting moment where all the ska bands become more like pop bands. So all of those bands that were had that very kind of uh, formal two-tone ska style start to make pop music and it's like fine young cannibals ub40 fun boy three big audio dynamite the police kind of a little bit yeah yeah it's great because they're bringing all of these qualities that made them so special into the pop music so that that history is heard in these songs so this is what the fine young candles were described as A combo of American soul, English pop, and modern Euro dance music. A powerful blend. Because this song, when it was released, it started off kind of grassroots because it was alternative and college radio when it first came out. That's where it was getting its airplay. And then it got popular in the clubs. And then it ended up at number one on the Billboard uh, music charts right interestingly though it never made it to number one in the uk only in the united states well not only in the united states but you know it was super popular in australia too yeah 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 it is interesting that it didn't soar that high to the top of the charts in the uk yeah and became so popular in the u.s when my impression of the song when i hear it is that my first impression is that when i listen closely it sounds like all of these different parts are isolated and on their own. Like the guitar, one guitar is over here, another guitar is over here, Roland Giff's vocals are over here, the snare drum and drum machine parts are over there, and they don't all exist in the same space. Which I guess is a tribute to the effect that David Z was trying to achieve with his production. Well, you said it was the a celebration of the space between the parts, right? Right, exactly. When it's described this way, it doesn't sound appealing at all. I think of something that's cold and distant. However, when you hear it, it's both true, what you just said, and it's so interesting and fun. Yeah. And this song is super fun, but it has all that complexity and space and distance. Yeah. But maybe it works sense when we're thinking about a relationship that's not really working, that somehow there's this space between, to quote Dave Matthews Band, between them. (laughs) What do you think? I came up with that right now. That makes sense to me because you came up with it as you were saying it. It is so separate, but the way that it comes together, you're absolutely correct. It makes sense. And that sort of telling of it within the the lyrics and the theme of the song. No, that I, I can see that 100%. I would like to use a culinary analogy. Some songs are like a soup where everything is blended together and tastes really good. This song to me is like one of those Japanese bento boxes that has all of the different things separated out in a little grid, like shrimp and rice and maybe a little ginger or wasabi paste. Uh, But when you eat it, the flavors come together in your mouth to create a whole. 
That's a perfect way of describing this song. Yeah. And a perfect way of thinking about how you can enjoy this song. That with each listen, you could focus on one part of the bento box production. So we jump into the lyrics. We talked about this earlier, that the lyrics actually are the, the sort of piece of the song that disappears between your fingertips. Like, you know, yeah. she drives you crazy, but whatever he's talking about could be more scatting than anything that makes perfect sense. Before we record, we always listen to the song again, and I have the lyrics in front of me as we're listening to the song. And I've read the lyrics and I've heard the song and it just never put the two together uh, at the same time. But it's so hard for me to reconcile what he is singing because it almost sounds like he's slurring all the words together. And I'm reading the lyrics, it's just like, oh, that's what he's saying? Like the entire song, that's what he's saying? Like none of this really made sense to me until I read it. And you bring those two pieces of the bento box together and you eat the lyrics. Yeah, I don't think I know any of the lyrics other than she drives me crazy. Yeah. Yeah, other than something like I'm obsessed, she's the best, blah, blah. Yeah, obsessed is in there. Rest is in there, not best, but you know, he slurs the lyrics in a way that I don't think I ever really understood what I'm going to say 64% of the words he was saying were. It wasn't even a misheard lyric thing. It was just like, ah, he's just saying something with sounds. But now that we have the lyrics in front of us, and I had to cross-reference a few places on the internet to make sure we had the right ones or the ones that were most consistently agreed upon. Yeah. All right. Verse one. I can't stop the way I feel. Things you do don't seem real. Tell me what you've got in mind, cause we're running out of time. Won't you ever set me free? This waiting round's killing me. I didn't know like the second half. I didn't had no idea he was saying that. Yeah, no, no, neither did I. And there's some evidence that they were actually just writing these lyrics as it was still being recorded. Like oh, really? In okay. the moment, they're still putting in words, okay. which lends itself to a feel more than like a consistent narrative structure. Yeah, because the, the first two lines make sense to me a little bit. I can't stop the way I feel because, well, the song's called She Drives Me Crazy. So there's two ways to be driven crazy, right? There's she makes me crazy. I'm like angry or upset or she drives me crazy i'm so obsessed and in love with this with this girl so niles barkley versus patsy klein yeah are those two different things though necessarily couldn't they be they could yeah i think i think they they, indistinguishable in some way yeah i think there's there's a venn diagram somewhere where they overlap but that's this song that's this song this song is a venn diagram of a bento box but the opening lines, obviously, the guy has very strong feelings for for her. The things you do don't seem real. So that could be taken one of two ways. Either I can't believe what you're doing in, in a negative way, or I can't believe what she's doing. Like, she's so great. Like, this this is such a fantastic thing that, that she's doing. Does and, that make sense? Yeah, it does. And then because you see him asking her what she's got in mind they're running out of time so there's something that he's waiting for or needs yeah 
But then he asked her to set him free. Won't you ever set me free? This waiting round's killing me. So either it's, I don't know, let's make ourselves a very serious couple, or he wants to be totally set free. But I think the setting free is, I'm just going crazy in this liminal space. Yeah. The chorus, we know, right? Yeah. She drives me crazy like no one else. She drives me crazy, and I can't help myself. One thing I love about the way that Roland Giff sings this song is that the he uses actually two different vocal styles. So he uses the falsetto, and then uh, during the verses, he's singing in a different style. And it is like he might have two different personalities that are battling. Oh, okay. Wow. Bit of a Kendrick Lamar. Right. The falsetto was actually a late addition. They tried to sing it without falsetto, and it wasn't working. Yeah. And yeah. that's when it was still, she's my baby. Right, right. And the falsetto kind of contradicts a little bit because it has that high feathery feel to it. But then the, the crunchy guitar and that industrial snare drum, it works ag- against each other, but with each other at the same time. It creates kind of a counterpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for explaining exactly what my brains are trying to tell me <laughs> to say. Verse two, I can't get any rest. People say I'm obsessed. And now this is where it takes a turn here. Everything you say is lies, but to me, that's no surprise. What I had for you was true. Things go wrong. They always do. That what I had for you was true doesn't register for me when I hear him sing. Like, uh, yeah, I, don't, oh, no, no, no. I don't hear it. Yeah. So that verse takes it into the direction of, okay, this woman is driving me crazy in a bad way. Like I'm obsessed with her or I love her or whatever superlative you want to add to that. I can't get any rest. People say I'm obsessed. Okay. So that's his state of mind. Everything you say is lies. He acknowledges that she's lying to him but he's still so obsessed or so in love or taken with this girl that he's accepting those lies he knows that they're lies but he's still he's okay with it because of how he feels for her for sure i think yeah there's part of him on an intellectual level that knows that this is very bad yeah but he is compelled uh by forces that he can't control yeah i've never been in that situation ever before in in my entire life I just love that you tried to say that with conviction, but the exact opposite meaning (laughs) came out. I've never felt that way before. (laughs) So this is like a choice you make in a guilt-free pleasure. You can feel like this, this sort of, I feel obsessed and crazy, or you can go like the Phil Collins route where you feel so down about how in love you are, and you just hear those sweet sounds. We have our two verses. We're going to be heading into the sort of like, in a way, the meat of the song, which is the things we all remember about, Yeah, is the repeated verses, the bridge, 
and the musical kind of breakdown. Yeah. So the musical breakdown comes first, and I feel like that's one of the parts I remember best. Yeah. Where you hear all the instruments working, and it doesn't feel like filler at all. Does that make sense? Yeah. It just works so well for the song with the, I don't know, just the whole feel of it. It kind of dr- brings you to that bridge. It doesn't feel like filler, but it has this complete separate feel from the rest of the song. Um, you can hear in that uh, musical sort of interlude, that musical bridge part, you can really hear that that Prince influence guitar that they were trying to get that probably David Z brought in to the production. That makes perfect sense, what you're saying. And now that adds another little piece to my bento box. Maybe you'd have to have a sidecar to the bento box. They, they don't have those, do they? No, that, you're thinking motorcycles. Like a cocktail? Uh, no, I was just thinking like a little thing you kind of paperclip onto your bento box. But yeah, you those could, don't exist. Okay, I'd paperclip a cocktail, I guess, if it's the right one. Oh, there's a cocktail called a sidecar. That's where my mind was going. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was thinking motorcycles, so. You like motorcycles? Sure. You like the big ones? The ones that go fast? Bridge. I won't make it on my own. No one likes to be alone. I think that's finally a part of the song where we all understood what he was saying. Yeah. So he's saying, I won't make it on my own. He's kind of in this desperate situation where he's like, I'm not going to make it by myself. So that maybe that's why he's latching on to this girl who he knows is just terrible. I also find it funny because he says, I won't make it on my own as though this is life or death. Yeah. And he says, you know why? Because no one likes to be alone. Like, okay, Roland, if you said no one can be alone, it would feel more like if it's yeah. no one can be alone, it would feel like more yeah. desperate. So it's kind of funny too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Is yeah. He's right. No one likes to be alone, but there's no sort of urgency about that. I'm sorry. I really don't have anything to add about the lyrics because, like you said, we can't really hear them that much. All that is important to me is the the chorus line, She Drives Me Crazy, which is the thing that you're going to sing along to in your car yes. and identify with because you are obsessing in grade seven over whomever you're obsessing about. <laughs> Do the lyrics remind you a little bit of like Motown lyrics? Because I think there's so much, you know, there's a lot of Motown influence in Fine Young Cannibals and in bands around this time. And it seems to me that they're trying to go for a very kind of simply structured and expressed idea and sentiment. They're not doing a a very, you know, Baroque, complicated story about hobbits uh, like, you know, Led Zeppelin is doing. They're doing something very like a pop song yeah and that could explain why it's so well received in the states right this is the birth of motown and then uh yeah you know and their hatred of hobbits people in the states don't understand the shire or hobbits or anything like that well you would know you live in the states now so they hate hobbits yeah (laughs) 
the music video is memorable to me, but also not something I particularly enjoyed, but I watched it a ton. It didn't make sense, but it made sense that it was popular because it was visually engaging and striking. And again, the stare by Roland Gift. Roland Gift is also wearing a black turtleneck with a black jean jacket over top of it. And he looks amazing. Like he yeah. look, he's very stylish. Yeah. I wanted that look. I wanted to have like a black, was it a mock turtleneck or a full turtleneck? I think it's a mock turtleneck. I couldn't I think pull it's it a off. full turtleneck. Oh, wow. It's like a turtleneck sweater, maybe. Okay. I did wear a lot of turtlenecks in the uh, 90s, but I missed my time probably. I should have really been hitting that up in the 80s. Well, you were wearing them under your Northern Reflection sweaters. White turtleneck under purple Northern Reflection sweater? Yeah. I don't know why I was alone for so long. <laughs> I know I didn't like it, just like Rolling Gift said, but I made it. Well, the problem is you kept that style well into the 2000s. Yeah. As soon or later, it's going to come back well, around. Well, yeah, it's all cyclical. The music video, the theme of it didn't really make sense to me, except that there were like uh, a bunch of characters dressed in very odd costumes uh, doing very highly choreographed modern dance routines. Yeah. And I think that they were just supposed to represent maybe emotions in you that are crazy. That makes uh, sense. Yeah. Especially the one part where you have the, the weird dance on the bright side and the weird dance on the dark side. Cause there's, and it looked like it was a split screen until they fell into each other. Yes, that's because right. Because this represents ourselves, the Venn diagram. It basically resembles what going crazy is all about. If I knew what resemble meant, I'd, I'd agree with you. Look it up. It's in the dictionary. Is it like that Disney movie um, Inside Out where they, they have different characters for different emotions? It could be, yeah. Kind of an early this version. This is a pre-Disney Man, video. Inside Out really ripped this video off. I think so. Just like Pepsi did. Poor Dave Z and the uh, three fine young cannibals. Side note, calling yourself the fine young cannibals meant you had to endure stupid interviews in like Good Morning America or the Today Show where like, oh, what do you guys like to eat? I watched some videos and oh, they, uh, they had to answer, well, do you guys actually eat people? It's just the worst questions. Yeah. Because they were probably interviewed before this album came out enduring those questions and maybe the title the raw and the cooked is kind of a tongue-in-cheek sort of answer to that uh to that question you want to hear a joke sure two cannibals are eating a clown the one says to the other does this taste funny to you <laughs> that's great dad, <laughs> dad. <laughs> all right category time what part of this song brings you joy for me, it's that musical bridge, that Prince guitar in the bridge there. I love that part. It's just of its time. And like we said, it, it's kind of separate from the song, but works with the song in the way that the Venn diagram bento box does. The part of the song that gives me joy, that's really hard to... Th I, I like all parts. Is it... I mean, that's a kind of a lame answer, but I like the whole... I like the whole song. I like being in the car and hearing the song come on the radio because it often does. Hearing that snare drum knowing that I'm going to be listening to She Drives Me Crazy. And it's like you ordering a bento box. You never ask for just one part. You want the whole thing. That's right. Okay. And for me, it's similar, but that uh, snare drum sound just always sticks with me. Sometimes I just listen to the song, trying to count the beats to when that snare drum's coming on, because I know yeah. it's kind of looping through. Yeah. And it kind of drives me crazy, but I can't help myself.
Next category, Michael Bolton. Could, should, would he sing the song? And if he did sing the song, when would the song just kind of spin out of control? I would like to hear Michael Bolton's falsetto part on the on the verses, particularly. But I think when he destroys the world, it's during the chorus. Because that's when everything sort of comes together. Like, like I said, those big crunchy guitars and Roland Gift in his version is he's gone from the falsetto to the driving lyrics and he's just like, she drives me crazy. And hear Michael Bolton do that would, that's when explosion. I like to think about him getting into the studio with the Fine Young Cannibals there. And as he's singing, he just slows it down while they're still trying to do their same beat so he can kind of feel the whole song. And I hear them all just throw their instruments down and quit. And he's still singing, <laughs> She Drives Me Crazy. That's well, the version I have He in my turns head. it into a ballad? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nate, do you have a take? No. <laughs> That's fair enough. I'm not uh, familiar enough with the various techniques that Michael Bolton employs in his delivery. Have you listened to any covers of this song? Uh, the one cover that I listened to was Dolly Parton. She does a bluegrass version of it. It's pretty good. Yeah. And she did it because her husband, Carl, likes the song. Yes. Also, Weird Al Yankovic did this. Oh, yeah, that's right. She drives like crazy. Yeah. She drives like crazy. She'll break our necks. She drives like crazy. She always gets into Very simple, straightforward lyrics. Kind of clever. Kind of obvious. A little bit sexist. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, if we're going to talk a little sexist, let's go a lot sexist with Arsenio Hall's version. His uh, rap pseudonym, Chunky A. Awful. Yeah. O is lazy. Yeah. Definitely belongs where it should be. A lockbox. Yeah. I took you out the ghetto, but the ghetto's in your brain. Your program is sorry. You're driving me insane. Get off the phone. Clean up the house. Comb your hair. You a bum, not a spouse. Go back to school. Ain't you got no dreams? Take my gold credit card. Buy some self-esteem. You a couch potato. Get a life before I drop you. I'm the next Michael Jackson. You watching soap operas. So we traditionally do a mixtape category but because we've brought in our good friend nathan holmes we know that he brings us remixes like he did on the orinoco flow episode yeah and nathan used to be a dj on a college radio station on a number of college radio stations correct i was a dj at cfbu brock radio for many years and then when i lived in colorado i had some radio shows out there in the glenwood springs area so we're bringing a heavy hitter to, to our remix uh, corner here. Well, let me ask you guys something. What do you look for in a remix? I'm looking for not the original mix, but something that's been redone. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Really? Yeah. Okay. 
Bill? I remix. Okay. <laughs> what I'm looking for is usually my favorite parts of the song extended. So when I think about, I think Nicolette Larson, it's going to take a lot of love. There's like a disco version. Oh, yeah. That's so long, but it plays the best parts. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm looking for, which goes against sometimes the remix aesthetic, I think, where they'll do something different. I think that both of you guys hit on the essential aspects of a remix. One, this song is only three minutes and like 50 seconds long. So if you want to play it in the club or even at the wedding, you might want to employ an extension that will keep people enjoying the song longer. Yeah. But also there's the creative dimension where people will want to explore or interpret different aspects of the song, which is what you were saying, Frank, right? Okay, let's dive into these remixes. So when the song comes out, it's, you know, the height of dance music, remixing pop songs. So this song is going to be in the clubs and there's going to be a need for uh, remixes. So there's a number of remixes that come out uh, contemporary to the song. And then there's a bunch that come out after the song has been released many years later. So David Z does his own remix for the 12 inch that comes out. It's okay. I, it would, it's not like really remarkable to me. There is uh, what is called the Money Love remix, and Money Love was a British rapper. And that includes verses that Money Love creates that she adds into the song. I think that one is actually pretty interesting. There's, it, there's an interesting new bass line that she introduces. Uh, and then the U.S. single has some U.S. remixes on it, and I think those are the best of the original remixes. There's a Justin Strauss remix, and there's uh, and Justin Strauss was kind of a well-known remixer of like Depeche Mode and and Pet Shop Boys and and people like that. And he worked with this guy named Chep Nunez to create a remix called the Driven Crazy Dub, which I would recommend. You can find all these on 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 YouTube. Okay. Links in the show notes. Okay, so then in the mid-90s, Roger Sanchez, who is a really big house music guy puts out uh, an album of uh, Drives Me Crazy remixes. There's like four four of them. The Time and Space remix, the Funk Phenomenon remix. I recommend the Funk Phenomenon remix. It's got kind of a jazzy aspect to it. The Time and Space remix, I didn't, I didn't love too much. It's a little bit, it messes with the instrumentation a little bit too much. Okay, and then in 2020, there's another remix EP that comes out with more DJs from kind of today. Uh, you've got the Dimitri from Paris club dub. You've got uh, two remixes by Seth Troxler. Those ones are very spacey and out there. Frank, you might like those. Oh, okay. I like space. Well, I know that you like it when a lot of things are changed about the original song, yeah. right? Okay. And then there's a Cerrone remix on there, too. 
remember Cerrone? He he was like a disco guy, a French disco guy. Yes. He put out a number of albums in the late 70s and 80s. I guess he's still doing remixes, and he did a okay. remix of uh, She Drives Me Crazy. But my picks are the Justin Strauss remix and the Funk Phenomenon remix. I'll have to give those a listen, absolutely. And that has been Remix Corner, a new weekly category on guilt-free pleasures that I will be hosting every single week, <laughs> every single episode. All right, Frank, you got a mixtape to bring to the table? My mixtape are songs about being driven crazy. Okay. We start with I Get Weak by Belinda Carlisle, Emotions by Mariah Carey, Everywhere Fleetwood Mac, Cut to the Feeling, Carly Rae Jepsen, Said I Loved You, But I Lied by Michael Bolton, and I am going to close it all off with Sick of Myself by Matthew Sweet. Oh, very good. Nicely done. All right. Mine are on the topic of being a relationship that drives you crazy and you kind of hate yourself for being in it. Like Sick of Myself by Matthew Sweet. Yeah, that's a good segue into my opening song, which is I Hate Myself for Loving You by Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. I follow that up with... John C. Mellencamp, Hurt So Good. Nice. And then we're going to go into a little Katy Perry, Hot and Cold, because you could be yes and no, in or out. Yeah. And then Lady Gaga, Bad Romance. Okay. And then I'm ending it with Britney Spears, Toxic. That's good. Thank you. It's really good. Mike dropped. Would you sing this at a karaoke night? That would depend if you could do falsetto, I guess. I don't know. Do, do you know if you can do falsetto? I know I can go for it. Yeah. And I know I've missed it most times. That's okay, because it's karaoke, so. Yeah, you just go for it. And, but just make sure you keep that mic a distance from you. You don't want to scream into it. Right. What I like about potentially doing this in karaoke is Roland Gift kind of slurs his words anyway, so it doesn't matter if I get the words right or not. I can just sort of like make up mouth noises and just perform the song yeah exactly as long as i get the chorus right that's that's all people care about what we kind of talked about weddings i guess because the remixes would be for the wedding okay so we know we'd put that on the dance floor that's not going to be your first dance because that's uh that's a one-way ticket to splitsville yeah yeah is it appropriate for a wedding do you want to bring up that kind of l'amour foo Yeah, exactly, right? Like, I read a critique on the song, and it said that it is too slow to dance to and too fast to smooch to. So I don't think it really plays as a wedding song. Play one of the remixes. I would I would go for one of the remixes. They're gonna they're gonna solve those problems for you. Oh, okay. Really fast kissing. I want to thank Nate for joining us again. As expected, you brought a ton of research and a ton of positive podcast juice to the episode. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I I love this show and what you guys are doing. If you love the show so much, how come you haven't listened to every episode? Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) You guys only have like 10 episodes though, right? Something like that, yeah. And I want to thank, as always, our listeners. You are what we're all about. We put this podcast out so you don't feel alone. 
Well, because no one likes to be alone. Thank you for joining us for Bill and Frank's Guilt-Free Pleasures.